Thank you, Tanner, for reading our scripture tonight. We're going to be looking, as was read a moment ago, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 17, as we talk about some of the provisions of the gospel. Before we begin, I do want to express appreciation for your presence tonight. As always, we're glad that you've chosen to be here. We encourage others to come back and be with us. It would be great if everyone present on Sunday morning would find their way back here on Sunday night. I'd love to see the day when that would happen. And it would be a great, great night. But we're grateful that you're here. And we pray that our time together will be beneficial. Tonight, as we think about some of the provisions of the gospel, I want us to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in our study, we want to begin by talking about the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel outlined by Paul in this context. Listen again to what he said, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about the call of the gospel. The Bible tells us that the gospel is a powerful message. And I want us to think for a minute or two about the power of the gospel. Because inherent in what Paul is saying here, there are three specific things that I think ought to stand out to all of us. Number one, we are saved by the truth of God. We're saved by the gospel. Paul said that God chose them from the beginning People are chosen or elected to salvation through the gospel. That is, through the calling of the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's word has the ability to pierce the hardest of hearts. On Pentecost Day, when those people present heard the gospel preached, for the very first time, Luke said that they were pricked in their hearts and they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They had been convicted of sin and because of the power of the gospel, they wanted to know what they needed to do. And the Bible tells us that Peter said, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In Acts chapter 8, when the early church was scattered abroad as a result of a great persecution, the Bible tells us that those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto those people. When they believed Philip, preaching things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke says they were baptized, both men and women. That underscores the power of the gospel, the fact that we're saved by the gospel of truth. And then not only are we saved by the gospel, but we are sanctified by the truth of the gospel. Paul said that God had chosen them for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means to set apart. When we're in the world, we belong to to the devil, to the world. We're under the domain of the devil. When we obey the gospel, Paul said, we are delivered out of the power of darkness. 
translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. In other words, God sets us apart. We then belong to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God? He said, You are not your own, but rather you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. So we've been, we've been saved by the truth of the gospel. We are sanctified by the truth of the gospel. And then thirdly, I would suggest we are strengthened by the truth of the gospel. Down in verse 15, Paul's going to say, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. I want to come back to that verse in a minute. But the power of living a Christian life is rooted in a knowledge of God's word. It's rooted in adhering to the truth of God. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul stood before the elders of the church from Ephesus when he was in Miletus? In verse 32, Paul said, Now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. That word able is the very same word that Paul uses in Romans 1.16 when he said, The gospel is God's power unto salvation. In other words, the gospel has the power, the ability to build us up, to strengthen us, to edify us, to make us what we ought to be in Christ Jesus. You can't grow if you don't feed on the Word of God. Jesus said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So I think about the power of the gospel, and then there's a second thing. That has to do with the precision of the gospel. The Hebrew writer tells us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He said it divides asunder the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow. And he said it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is a critic. It'll tell us what we're doing right. It'll tell us what we're doing wrong. You remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3? All scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And so God's Word has the ability to save us, to sanctify us, to strengthen us. That's the power. And then by way of precision, the Word of God has the ability to tell us exactly what we need to do. First of all, it tells us what we need to do to become a Christian. You ever thought about how God's Word is not ambiguous? It doesn't deal in think-sos and maybe-sos. But rather, it's absolute, it's dogmatic, isn't it? When I think about what to do to become a Christian, God wasn't vague when he told us what to do. Jesus, when he was upon this earth, here's what he said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. What does that mean? It simply means unless I believe that he is the divine son of God, I'll die in sin. And Jesus said, if you die in sin where I am, there you cannot come. According to John chapter 8, verse 21. So I have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Then I have to repent of every sin. On Pentecost Day, Peter told those people assembled in Jerusalem to repent. That means to change their heart, to change their mind, to give up a life of sin. And then to confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. And then I am to be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. Here's what Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized 
shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. That's very precise, isn't it? The Bible tells us that when we do that, God then puts us in the church, Acts 2, 47. We are in the church because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Savior of the body. We have to be in the body if we want to be saved. So that's precise. So the gospel tells us what we need to do to become a Christian, and then it tells us how to behave as a Christian. God hasn't left it to us to just decide how we're going to live and how we're going to conduct business in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God. God's interested in us following His Word, in doing things His way. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18? All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. God the Father said of Jesus while He was transfigured on the mountain, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then here's what He said, Hear Him. That means whatever Jesus said, we need to listen to. So we are to live lives of holiness and righteousness and godliness. In Titus chapter 2, Paul said, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man, instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God is interested in how we behave. And by the way, we talk about our behavior. And we talk about becoming a Christian. It matters whether or not we're a child of God. It matters whether or not we behave in the body because Jesus is going to one day judge us. The standard by which he's going to judge us is this word. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, he said, the same shall judge him in the last day. So, the call of the gospel. But then there is a second thing I want you to see. That is the commands of the gospel. Look now, if you would, at verse 15. In verse 15, Paul said, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. A couple of things here. First of all, there are some traditions that are optional in nature. Now, somebody might ask the question, what do you mean there are traditions that are optional in nature? Well, from the vantage point of our work, worship, and service to God, there are some things that are left to our discretion, are there not? For example, when it comes to our worship to God, it may be the case that we sing three songs. It might be the case that we sing six songs. It's optional. The key is that we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. It's optional as to how many prayers we have. Those are optional matters, are they not? It might be the case that we choose to meet at noontime instead of 9 or 10 in the morning. Again, that is an option. We might have the Lord's Supper before the sermon, we might have it afterward. Again, that's an option. There are a number of things that are optional in nature. Somebody says, well, that's just how we've done things here. That's been our tradition. Well, I understand that. But there are also some things that are tradition that did not originate with men and women. 
but rather are rooted in the Word of God. You have to understand that there is a difference between the traditions of men and the traditions of God. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said, In vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There are a lot of things that go on in the name of religion that are rooted in quote-unquote man-made, they have man-made origins. They're rooted in man-made traditions. The traditions that I'm talking about now are traditions that are obligatory to those of us who belong to the body of Christ. In other words, it's mandatory. It's not optional. Whether or not we have a psalm before the sermon or a prayer, that's an option. But when it comes to the acts of worship, that's an obligation. I want to just read for you a quotation to kind of help maybe set the context of what we're talking, talking about because you have to understand, there are a lot of people in the religious world and even many within the church, that is within churches of Christ, who do not understand this. An article that was penned and published November the 17th, 2014 by a fellow named Patrick Mead, and he preaches for a large congregation in Franklin, Tennessee. Here's what he said. I and a great many in the churches of Christ, along with countless others in religious traditions, now see the Bible as a narrative, not a rule book. That's very important. Now, first of all, is the Bible a narrative? Well, it is. It is a narration beginning with the Genesis, that is, the origination of man, the world, and it narrates us through the coming of Jesus. It tells us the fact that He will one day come again. But within that narrative are rules. Would you not agree? There are some folks that say, well, the Bible is a love letter. It's not a law book. It's not a textbook. Well, I want to ask you as a parent, do you love your children? Your answer would be yes. Just because you love your children doesn't mean that you don't give them rules to abide by. There is an interesting statement made in Philippians chapter 3, verse 16. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, let us walk... By this rule, the word rule there is transliterated canon. Now we talk about the canon of Scripture, 66 books in the Bible, 27 books in the New Testament which are binding upon us today, are they not? The Bible is our textbook. It is our rule book. In other words, God has given us a law whereby we are to follow Him. Now he says the Bible is a narrative, not a rule book. Well, I wonder what Paul would think about that. Because in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul said that we live under the law of Christ. It is identified as the perfect law of liberty in James 1.25. That's what James said. So you see, when you talk about the law of God, there is a law. Jesus said, now think about this. Think about 
what this fellow just said. In light of what the Lord said, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. If the Lord's going to judge us, does that not imply that there is a divine standard by which we are to live? Doesn't that imply that there is a code, some principles upon which we are to follow? Webster, I think, says that the word rule means that which is established as a principle, a standard, or directory. Is that not what the Bible is? Yes, it is. When Paul said in verse 15, Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Over in chapter 3, verse 14. He's going to say, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. The epistle was binding. It was a divine letter. Now think about the words of Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. He said, If anyone thinks himself to be spiritual or a prophet, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. A command, a command of Almighty God. Would that not imply there's a standard, a rule that we're to follow? When Paul said, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. As a parent, you love your children. When you tell them, don't play in the street, is that a command? Is that a rule? Yes, it is. If they violate that, what happens? What's sin? The Bible says sin is the violation of the law of God, the transgression of the law of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. So we have to be consistent when we begin to teach and preach other folks. And let me just say this, that when you begin reading what some folks are saying in the church, you need to understand some of these people are having tremendous influence, not just in congregations, but in quote-unquote Christian schools and universities. The traditions that I'm talking about are not optional in nature. There's an obligation incumbent on all of us to adhere to them. Now, let me just read for you a statement written by Robert Randolph, and this will give you some idea of what we're talking about. He wrote an article in 2003, Why Women Should Be Preaching in the Churches of Christ. Now, that's not a new thing. There are women that are participating in a public way, in some congregations today. But listen to what he said. I found this very interesting. The churches of Christ are essentially a men-only club. Did you know that? Odd to me, but that's what he said. That keeps women on the outside, in part because we do not know any better, but more importantly because we're afraid. He said, we are afraid to change a tradition that has given voice to women in secondary and manipulative ways. Stories abound of men who were dependent on their wives' social and intellectual talents leading in the church behind the veil of male leadership. To challenge such a tradition, lead, or rather, treads on the toes of good people 
who have made this misguided system work, often to the good of the wider community. How could we think of changing? There are a lot of things I could say about what this fellow's written. And I'll just tell you right now what he's written is false to the core. When he talks about our tradition, we're afraid to change a tradition that has given voice to women in secondary ways, in manipulative ways. I want you to just listen to what, turn if you would, I want you to know I'm not making this up. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Specifically, Verse 12, here's what Paul said. Now, bear in mind, Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, said in the long ago, the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Here's what Paul said. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority, to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, some might say, well, that's a cultural thing. Well, listen to what he says in verse 13. For Adam was, for, was formed first, then Eve. Is that cultural? Drop back and look at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul said that God desires all men. The word for men here denotes both male and female. God desires all men, male or female, to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now drop down, look at verse 8. In verse 8, Paul said, Therefore, I desire that the men... Now, the word men here is restrictive. In the original, it means male only. And so, those who lead publicly in prayer, what Paul is saying is, I desire that the men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Did Paul know what he was talking about? Listen, he was inspired of God. He was writing the very commands of God. Jesus had said, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now look at chapter 3, verse 15. You think about the infancy of the church and the fact that you had God's inspired message in men. Today we have it in the book called the Bible. God's message today is not in the messenger, it's in word form. So in verse 14, Paul said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But he said, If I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So when it comes to women... In public settings, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, okay, the woman has a role. Can a woman teach? Yes, she can, Titus chapter 2. However, she's not to usurp. She's not to have authority over the male. In other words, she can't teach in a mixed setting. That didn't originate with me. That's not some tradition that we've trumped up in quote-unquote churches of Christ. That is a tradition rooted in Scripture. Now we talk about this pattern and the fact that we have a divine pattern to follow. Let me give you another example of what I'm talking about. In Romans chapter, 
in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said, But God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart, listen to him, that form of doctrine. The word form there is a pattern. What Paul is saying is there is a form, there is a pattern that we are to follow if we are to become New Testament Christians. Can you imagine, can you imagine them not having a pattern, a rule book, commands to follow in, other, in order to become a child of God? The infancy of the church necessitated these inspired men conveying the will of God, the command of God. Today we have that same word, it's just in book form, it's in the New Testament. Are we bound to it? Yes, we are. Well, how do I know that? Because Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said that I teach the same thing in every church, in every place. Paul didn't go to Corinth and teach one thing and then go over to Ephesus and teach something else or teach those who were in Philippi something else. No, he was uniform in his teaching and preaching. There was a day and time in churches of Christ that for the most part, if you were to stop in and visit with a congregation in another city or another town, you would find them doing things the same. In other words, they would follow the acts of worship revealed in the New Testament, wouldn't they? You would hear the preaching of the gospel. You would hear prayers being offered to God. And those who would lead in prayer would be males. You would have the Lord's Supper taken, the giving of our means, and singing. The singing that would have taken place would, been, would have been without any kind of musical instrument. That's not the case today. Now there are some that will talk about our tradition, and sometimes you'll hear them talk about the Stone Campbell movement and how we're a part of that tradition that origin. Let me tell you what, I am not a part of any man-made organization or man-made tradition. I respect the ideals of what Barton W. Stone, Alexander Campbell, and others tried to do. I respect their intent to go back and to do things according to the New Testament, to simply follow what the Bible teaches. But Alexander Campbell is not the standard. Barton W. Stone is not the standard. The standard is God's Word. We got a lot of people in our brotherhood. We got a lot of folks in the world today. They misunderstand that. You got to understand that God's word is always right. I mentioned congregations and visiting congregations. And some of you have had the opportunity to travel and you've been out visiting. And I have heard from you some of the things that you've seen and heard. Let me tell you what. As, as they said, in days gone by, times they are changing. And they are changing. And you're liable to see just about anything in some congregations. They may have the name right out on the sign. But what takes place within the confines of that building is not New Testament Christianity. You need to understand that. My recommendation to some of our brethren who are not satisfied with following 
the traditions that are rooted in Scripture. Take the sign down and move on. If you're not interested in following the precepts of New Testament Christianity, if you're not interested in being the church of Christ, that is, the church that belongs to Christ, then move on. My second recommendation would be this. On your way out, take some of the schools that you have hijacked from us, take them with you. Because we don't need them either. Because they have disrupted the peace and the harmony that should pervade within the body of Christ. Does that make, does that make sense? There were schools that were started by faithful members of the body of Christ. And we talk about blood, sweat, and tears and people giving everything they had to Christian institutions so that they could perpetuate New Testament Christianity so that their children could go to school, learn Christian values, marry a Christian mate, and be productive in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what. There are men and women that have sacrificed and they have borne the heat of the day and those schools today have left us. And it is an affront to some of those faithful brethren. Some of those schools bear the names of individuals who bought and paid for those institutions with blood, sweat, and tears. It is an affront to their good name when it comes to some of the things they're teaching within those classrooms. You need to understand, sometimes we have to just do some teaching, don't we? We have to be plain, we have to be upfront and honest. And let me tell you what, Sin loves darkness. The best way to deal with sin is to put the light of God's Word on it. Let people know what's going on. There are a lot of people in our world, a lot of people in the church have no idea what's going on. You need to know. You need to understand there are a whole lot of congregations that are trying to do what's right, just like us. They're trying to follow God's Word. Just trying, they don't want to go to the left, don't want to go to the right. They're just trying to follow what the Word says. There are some, however, not intent with that. They're going to the left, not interested in going in that direction. Others, they're interested in going to the extreme right, not interested in that either. What I want to do is simply follow what the Bible says. Well, how can I do that? Here's what Paul said. Turn back again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, rather chapter 2. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. What I've said before, I want to say it again. Whatever I say from this pulpit or in a classroom, please do not take what I say. And believe it without checking it out. You make sure what I say is found in this book. If it's not found in this book, then by all means, don't obey it. If what I say is in this book, then you need to respect it. Not because I say it, but because that's what God said. Last week we talked about the Bereans and the fact that the Bereans were commended because they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Let me tell you what. There are a lot of things that would stop. There are a lot of things that are being propagated within and without the church that would be stopped in their tracks if men and women would simply do what the Bible tells us to do, search the Scriptures. 
Make sure that what you believe, what you practice is found in this book. We have a responsibility to know what we believe and why we believe it. And when sometimes I hear people say, well, my preacher said this, or the Church of Christ teaches that. Wait a minute, you need to understand. It's not what my preacher teaches, not what the Church of Christ teaches, it's what the Bible teaches. That's what's important. God's Word, that's the standard. Not me, not anybody else. God's Holy Word. Very quickly, our time's gone. There is the comfort of the gospel. Look at verse 16. Paul said, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. In the first century, some of the Thessalonians were being persecuted. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 1, verse 6, in his first letter, he said that they had received the word in much affliction. In chapter 1, in verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul said that there is coming a day in which God would give them rest. Listen to him. Listen to what he says. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels taking in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes... Those of us who are trying to do what's right and who are, who are trying to live a Christian life, we have to understand we're going to be troubled. We're going to have folks that are going to dig at us and take shots at us. Sometimes walking within that narrow road is not the popular road. But there is comfort and consolation in knowing that the Lord will comfort us, He'll be with us, and He'll bless us. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for this day, for the opportunity we have to be together tonight. We pray, Father, that we would take your word and use it as a rule, as a guide for our lives. Help us to lead others to Christ. Help us to point them in the right direction through a study of your word. We ask, Father, that you would bless the church here. We're grateful for our elders, our deacons, for every member. Thankful for our teachers. Father, we pray that you would bless each of us with wisdom. Bless us with a heart to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. I want to encourage you to obey the gospel. Do what they did on Pentecost Day. If you'll do what they did, I promise you, you'll become what they were. And if you're what they were, then you will have the same promises that they had. That is, they lived in hope of life eternal, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Titus 1, verse 2. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, been baptized into Christ, why not do that tonight? If you're unfaithful to his cause, could we pray with you and for you? The Bible tells us that God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?